0: Grab your Bibles if you will though. We're going to jump into our sermon for today. Genesis chapter one is where we'll begin. Uh, We have a lot of different places to be today. Genesis chapter one is where we'll begin in just a moment as we continue to walk through and uh, really live in a season of prayer as we begin our year. Genesis chapter one verse 26 is where we'll begin in just a moment. Uh, while you were turning there, uh, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but over the weekend, something momentous happened in our nation's capital. On Friday, the annual March to Life occurred right there on the Capitol Mall. Uh, this is the 49th right, uh, or March for Life, uh, which has happened every single year since the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973. Uh, people from all across the country, from all different walks of life, Protestant, Catholic, All different generations from all over the place gathered together with a singular purpose to say we want to see the end of legalized abortion in America. Now, this is something that we have been living with for a long time. 49 years is a long time. Uh, In fact, Roe v. Wade was passed the year before I was born. And so this has been my whole life. Thankfully, in that year, my parents did not utilize their newfound right to kill their unborn child. But for my life, and for everybody who was younger than me, those generations that follow after, this has been the norm. This has been the world that we have lived in. This has been a constant where legalized abortion, for almost any reason, was the law of the land, what is exciting is that we now seem to be possibly on the cusp with this having to be the last time to protest Roe v. Wade in the Capitol. There's an actual possibility that over the course of this next year, that might actually be challenged, and this will not be a federal statute in America anymore. Decades of prayer, of marches, of work, Uh, May now finally pay off in a change that would not end all of abortion in America, but it will be a massive step in the right direction. Now, let's be honest. Anytime you say the word abortion in public, that's an incredibly emotional word, is it not? It stirs up a ton of emotions for lots of different reasons, many of which that we'll look at here in the next few minutes. And even right now, outwardly, we might be staying calm, but you might be feeling those emotions roil up inside of you. And look, those emotions are important, but we need to make sure that as we walk forward, and certainly how we think about this issue and how we respond in regards to this issue, let's not be guided simply by our emotions. Let's go back to scripture. Let's go back to what the Lord says and figure out why we believe the way that we do. Why is it that we as a people and certainly as Christians would say that we do not believe that abortion is okay? And so today, from wherever we come from, for whatever emotions might be roiling around inside of you, I hope that we will, we will look into the word to see what the Lord has to say about this. Because it is actually possible to see a cultural shift. It is actually see it possible to see a culture that shifts from a culture that does not value the life of the unborn to becoming a culture that actually does. We know this not simply because of the makeup of the Supreme Court or the possibilities or what the pundits say. We know that culture change is possible because it's happened before. When you and I look back into history, we find that this is not just a current issue. The question of abortion, the question of the rights for the unborn is something that has been going on for millennia. In fact, in the days of Jesus Christ, this was an issue that people were certainly wrestling with. When Jesus Christ was born, he was born into a culture surrounded by a Roman empire that had a very different value set than the Jewish culture that he was born into. The culture of the entire Roman Empire was one that said you can do whatever you want to your unborn or newly born child. This was just the basic idea of the culture. We know this from a lot of different pieces, a lot of different pieces of of archeological evidence, but one of the most off is a letter that we have found from a Roman soldier. It's a guy named Hilarion. Uh, He was a Roman soldier writing back to his wife, Uh, And when he writes back to his wife, he he writes a very tender letter like any soldier away from home would. He asks about his child and says, is the child doing well? Please take care of our child. Later on in the letter, he'll say, how can I forget you? My my wife, please don't be anxious. I'm sending money as soon as I can. He clearly cares for his family. But when he comes to instruct her on what to do with their upcoming child, here's what he says in the middle of all these tender feelings. He says, if it's a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, cast it out. That's how he feels about his unborn child. He's clearly okay with having another child. He just doesn't want it to be a girl. And so he is encouraging his wife to perform something called infanticide, which is to take their newly born child and to expose it, to quite literally cast it out. And these children would have either died in the wilderness or they would have been captured and sold into slavery for lots of different means. In the Roman culture, there's a historian named Larry Hurtado uh, who pointed some of this out. He said the Roman Empire needed about half a million new slaves every year to make the empire run. If you wanted to keep the empire running the way it ran, you needed a half million new slaves every year. By his estimates, 150,000 of those slaves every year would have come from these discarded children. People who had children discarded in the way, they were then grabbed, raised for the sole purpose of being sold into slavery or prostitution. That's every year. That's also 1 BC. This is literally a year before the birth of Christ. This is the culture into which Jesus was surrounded, not by the Jews. The Jews were never a part of this. They they, they never uh, espoused this, but the Roman culture that had occupied them certainly did, but as Christianity comes to the fore, as Jesus Christ comes and teaches us of the way of love, as he changes how people relate to children, he begins to help people understand that both abortion and infanticide are wrong. So much so that we have other pieces of evidence. There's a, a, another ancient work called the Didache. Uh, that word is a Greek word that means Teaching. Uh, Many scholars believe that it is dated to the early first century, uh, which makes it older than even some parts of our New Testament. Uh, They call it the teaching because it means the teaching of the apostles, and it's it's a small work, but apparently this is what the apostles were saying. This is what they were telling people. Here's how we live out what Jesus taught us to do. And when they thought about the greatest commandment, Somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. When it comes to understanding the second greatest commandment, here's what it says in the first century. The second commandment of the teaching means commit no murder, adultery, sodomy, fornication, or theft. Practice no magic, sorcery, abortion, or infanticide. Think about that for just a second. This is in the first century. This is right there. This is Paul. This is right there in the teaching of the early apostles. They were not only aware, they said, this is not okay. It is not okay for us to not protect the lives of our unborn or newly born children. Furthermore, when we try to think about the command, love your neighbor as yourself, if we truly take that to heart, then how could we approve of abortion? How could we approve of infanticide? And so this very small Christian sect that began to grow all over the Roman world as Paul began to go and preach to the Gentiles, to people in Philippi and Corinth and and Thessalonica and Ephesus and all these other Roman cities who were thoroughly saturated with this Roman culture, talking to them about a counterculture that says, no, we're gonna value all human life. It might seem that that culture would just swallow up these Christians, but within three centuries, we find the opposite. We find that Christian culture overtaking the Roman culture, and instead of there being a culture of death, there becomes a culture of life that actually begins to outlaw these types of practices and to protect those who are either poor, newly born, and do not have resources for themselves. Culture change is absolutely possible because we've seen it before. And so we have an opportunity on the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade to go back to the scriptures and look and say, why would we champion such a cause? And so the first reason we do that is because when we look at scripture, we find a couple things to be true. Number one, we find that humans are made in the image of God. All humans are made in the image of God. Look here in Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26. I'm gonna put this one up on the screen, but hopefully you've got that there in your text in front of you. Very first page of scripture. It tells us this, as God is creating everything, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These are foundational passages for us of how we understand who we are as human beings. What the Bible tells us clearly is this, you and I are not cosmic accidents. We are not simply the products of random evolution. We are not simply the latest hominids to walk the planet, but that instead we are created beings. We are created by a God who had an intentional purpose in creating us. When God creates male and female, when he makes all of humanity, he says, I have made you on purpose. We have purpose because God has made us on purpose. We don't have to invent one or create one. We have one because we were made intentionally by our creator. Furthermore, we are made in a particular way. We are made in the very image of God himself. We are not like everything else in creation. God created lots of things. He created planets. He created nebulae. He created animals. But there's something different with us than everything else in all creation. You and I are made in the very image of God. We are made in the very image of God. We bear his very image. What that tells us then is that every single human life is important. It does not matter if they're different from you, if they're a different race or a different culture or come from a, a different country. It does not matter if they come from different socioeconomic status, if they're a different gender, anything. Every single human life is important. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. How is it that we are told even to love our enemies? Because even our enemies are made in the very image of God. Every single human life has value. You can see this in a lot of other places. Look at Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Notice what it says here. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Why do we oppose murder? Why do we oppose suicide or even physician-assisted suicide? Why? Because we are made in the very image of God. Go to the next one. Uh, this is James chapter three, verses nine through 11, New Testament. It says, with it, he's talking about our tongue. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring, uh, does a spring forth, um, spring forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. He's advising us not to curse one another, but he's not simply talking about other Christians. No, he says we curse people. Why would that be prohibited? Because those people, regardless of who they are, are made in the very image of God. So even when we have issues with others, they are made in the very image of God. And so anytime we see oppression, anytime we see slavery, anytime we see people being degraded, we stand up and say no. Why? Because every human life is valuable. But here's the second thing that the Bible teaches us. Not only is every single person made in the image of God, human life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. You might say, Adam, now look, these people didn't know as much about science as we did. How could they possibly know that? Well, we may not have known about uh, a lot about science, but I would think that God knows a little bit more about creation and making a universe than even we do today. Go figure. Uh, and so look, he has some things to say about when life begins. And when you look at the scriptures, you actually find quite a lot about this. Look at Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. David, the psalmist, is praying here he's talking to God. He says, for you, he's talking to the father, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. Where? In my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes Saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed from me, when as yet there was none of them. Go back one slide. Look what he says here you formed me in my mother's womb. Not just my body, not just my, the, the beginnings of my future form, you formed me. Look at verse 15 when I was being made in secret. David's life didn't begin post-birth. His life began as the Lord himself was knitting him together within his mother's womb. Life has begun at conception. Look at Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. This is God talking to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God doesn't wait for Jeremiah to be born, see what he's going to turn out to be, and this says, I guess you can be a prophet. He says, no, when I was making you, when I formed you in the womb, I already knew you. I had plans for you. Your life didn't simply begin when you were born. Your life began in the womb. Here's Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. It says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Again, David talking about his life. He says, you have done this for me from the womb, not from birth, but from my womb. It's also interesting, this is Psalm 22. This is the Psalm that Jesus Christ quotes from the cross. He continues to give even more legitimacy. He says, no uh, Conception is the beginning of life. Here's Luke chapter one, verses 39 uh, through 42. I find this interesting. Uh, This is a passage about Mary, the mother of Jesus, before Jesus is born, talking to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. These are two pregnant women getting together for a chat. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So Mary carrying Jesus comes for a visit and John the Baptist in utero throws a party. He starts kicking. He responds. He is filled with the Holy Spirit even from before birth. This is what God's plan is for John the Baptist. And he is responding to the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which all science has done is confirmed that that can absolutely happen. And so you see, this is not waiting for birth to talk about life. Life has begun at conception. Here's Psalm 51.5. And notice what it says here. It says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Not conceive my body, not conceive my future form, conceive me. So when you look at scripture, what you find is that life begins at conception. This is where life begins. Now we could stop there and as believers, we can say this is what the Bible teaches us and that's enough for us. But the interesting thing is that what science has done is, the science has done nothing more than to confirm what we already know. Over the past 50 years, we have watched science not confirm the idea that the baby is not a baby, it's just a fetus. We said, no, we now know so much more about the rich life of a baby in utero. We know that the heartbeat is starting at like 18 days. We we, we know that the the nervous system is working at eight weeks. We know that a baby can hear and understand and recognize nursery rhymes. You can hear the voice of a mother and respond to that, that they actually move in response to stresses and stimuli. Life is starting way before birth. And so many scientists have come out to say the exact same thing. There's one uh, from Dr. Pfeiffer. This is Dr. Bill Pfeiffer, a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and a leading expert on fetal and newborn learning. He says, everything that a newborn baby does, a fetus is pretty much done already. Everything a newborn baby does, a fetus is pretty much done already. It's like, we're not talking about apples and oranges here. We're not talking about this grand shift when we get to birth, that life was already there. And then this is uh, another quote from Professor Micheline Matthews Roth at Harvard University Medical School. She says, it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Science has just shown us more of this. We didn't have ultrasounds in 1973. We do now. We have those weird, creepy 3D ultrasounds. You've seen those I mean, you can, there's all kinds of science that has done nothing but to show it's even more the life of this unborn child. This is what we know to be true. And so, if the Bible teaches us that humans are made in the image of God and that life begins at conception, what do we conclude? We conclude this that God cares for every single human life. That God cares for every single human life, period. Why? Well, because God is the one doing the knitting. It's God who puts people together. It's a God who created us this way. It's God who made this whole process. It's God who is one who is knitting them together, which leads us to an inescapable conclusion. If those two things are true, then, the, then abortion is the killing of a human life. Period. Abortion is the killing of a human life. We cannot escape this fact. Now look, that's a hard statement for a lot of people. That's a hard statement for people to take in. People typically don't like that, which is why over the past 50 years and really in the run-up to the 50 years before Roe v. Wade was passed, there's a lot of people who say, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. That cannot be true. And they have reasons why they would deny that life begins at conception or that this is the killing of a human life. Here's how the culture will respond to us. First off, they say, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. It's not a baby, it's a fetus. This is not the killing of a human life. We're simply killing a fetus. This is not an actual human baby. That can't happen until they are born. Before that, they are simply equivalent to a clump of cells in the woman's body. They are equivalent to an appendage. They are equivalent to an organ organ. And they are no different than that. And so whatever we want to do with that, in the same way that we wouldn't worry about taking out a tumor, we can take out a, uh, a fetus as well because it's just not a person. Which is weird because when people want to have a baby, they only talk about it being a baby. Have you noticed that? When people are pregnant, they say, I'm expecting a baby. They don't go, I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I got, I got a new clump of cells. It's doing something. I don't know what it is. No, that's not how we act. We we throw parties. We, we, We create nurseries. If you took out another part of our body, we would treat that differently. Last time I checked, nobody has ever thrown a gender reveal party for a tumor that they removed. You ever been to one of those? It's benign, right? You ever been to that? No, that would be creepy and gross. Because nobody, it's just a tumor, you wouldn't do anything like that. You'd share the news. You wouldn't throw a party for it. Furthermore, I don't know of anybody who's ever been to counseling because of the loss of their appendix. You ever seen anybody get that broken up? I just can't, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. I lost my appendix. Can, can, I need counseling for that. Nobody has ever, I don't think, gone to counseling for the loss of their appendix. But how many women in this room have certainly struggled through the loss? Of not just abortion, but a miscarriage. I don't defy anybody to tell them it's no big deal. If you've struggled through that or your family has struggled through that, you absolutely know this is something much more than a clump of cells, than merely an appendage, than merely something to be taken out. It's not. And we all intuitively know that. And it's disingenuous to say that this is not a human life until it's born. We all know that not to be the case, but here's the second argument that people will give against this. They will say, "But it's my body. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do with my body. You say you keep your hands off my body. Government can't tell me what to do with my body." Which is interesting. That sounds kind of familiar. Um, except that we tell people what to do with their bodies all the time, don't we? If you try to commit suicide, we will call the police and take you to a hospital and tell you you cannot do that to your body. If you try to sell your body for sex, we will call that a crime and tell you that you cannot do that with your body. If you try to ingest alcohol, drugs... Before a certain age, and some drugs not at all, we tell you you cannot do that with your body. We have multiple laws in the books that tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. And we don't have a lot of hue and cry about that. And yet when it comes to this one, we say, you can't do that with my body. But listen, we have to. You see, here's the big problem. When it comes to dealing with an abortion, we're not just dealing with one body, we're dealing with two. This doesn't just concern the body of the mother. We're now concerned with two bodies. There's the body of the mother and the body of the child. So we can't simply say, don't touch my body. Even if we don't, what we're claiming in abortion is the right to then make decisions for another body, for another human, and that's what we don't want to deal with. See, the real question is this. The question is not, what do I want to do? The question is, what am I doing? The question is not, what do I want to do? The question is, what am I actually doing? You see, they're similar, but the first one's more selfish. Because the first question, what do I want to do, says this. I have the power to determine whether this is actually a human being or not. I have the power to determine whether this is going to be a baby or if it's going to be a fetus. I have the power to determine whether this person is going to live or to die. I don't like to think about it in those terms, so how about this? I'll just dehumanize it. Now it's not a he or a she, it's an it. I have the power to say that this is not a human being. And you and I would rightly turn away from anybody who says that they are not human beings. I'm going to look down. They are lesser human beings. We can enslave them. We can impress them. We can abuse them. You know why? Because they're not human beings. The number of atrocities that have been done in the human history with that kind of thinking are legion. And we would rightly condemn them all until it comes to abortion where we say, I get the power to choose whether this is a human or not. That's not okay. We wouldn't approve of that anywhere else. Why would we approve it when it comes to an unborn human life. And so look, if all of these things are the case, we must say that abortion is not good. The third objection, though, they say, well, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? And there's gonna be a lot of whatabouts. Adam, you're, you're just making this too simplistic. Adam, you're throwing a couple of verses around, but you're not really thinking about the depth of this issue. This is a complex issue. What about rape? What about incest? What about incest? What about the health of the mother? What about, what about all poverty? What about teenage pregnancy? What about, what about mental health issues? What about drug issues? What about the, the things that have created the environment that have really made these things to occur? And all of that is true. There are complex situations, there are very hard situations, but those are not the majority of these cases. By a vast degree, these are not the majority of the cases. And yes, we do need to talk about the things that would breed more unwanted pregnancies or teen pregnancies. The vast majority of abortions are occurring to women who are either at or right below the poverty line. Vast majority. So if we care about ending abortion, we also need to care about poverty. And how are we helping those who find themselves in a situation that would push them in this direction? We can't simply be one issue people. We have to value life at all stages and in all ways. I'm really glad I got an amen on that. We got to care about life across the board, but simply because there are exceptions or simply because it's complex does not mean it's okay to carte blanche say we can end a human life before it's born. We can't. The earliest Christians did not do that. Christians throughout history have never done that. Scripture tells us that we should not do that. Therefore, we should choose to say we will not approve of abortion. And so what do we do with that? I know that in some sense I'm probably speaking to the choir, but what do we do with that as people? Because this is not an issue that is simply out there. This is an issue that is in here. This is an issue that we, as a people, whether you're here in this room today or you're watching online, this is what we deal with. And the first thing I think we all need to do as a people is to repent. Repentance is always something we ought to be doing as believers, but the very first thing we need to be doing is to repent. And there's lots of different groups of us who need to do that. First off, there are women in this room who need to repent from an abortion in your past. Now look, I know that is a hard thing to say and there's some women in this room right now doing a really good job trying to keep it together. You're doing awesome. And I hope you hear my heart and the heart of this church. It is not anybody's intention to go throwing stones at anybody. We sit in a room full of sinners. We sit in a room filled with people who have all fallen short of the glory of God. And quite honestly, there's a lot of people in Scripture who have dealt with something very similar, from Moses, who killed a man in his youth, from David, who had a man killed to protect and try to cover up his unplanned pregnancy, to Paul, who just sat by while Stephen gets murdered and approves the whole thing. And yet God powerfully moves through these people. Look, there is no sin that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that you can commit or I can commit that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ, greater than the love of Jesus Christ, greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. It does not matter which sin it is. There is no sin greater than the love of our Savior. But there will be no healing in your life until we finally repent. Healing starts with repentance. Healing starts when we stop making excuses or stop just trying to put it in the past or stop trying to pretend it did not happen. Healing begins when we acknowledge what has been done. We admit that it was wrong and we say, God, can you forgive me? And you will find that not only he can, but he will. God, can you heal me? Not only can he, he will. But that will not happen until it starts with repentance. Look, if you're a woman in this church who has dealt with this in your past, you are certainly not alone. There are lots of ladies in this church who this is their story too. We've done secret Bible studies in the past where ladies have been able to gather and talk about this together and find healing. You are not alone. So look, if this is your struggle today, I'd encourage you to talk to Courtney Solosi, our women's minister. She will not tell me who you are she might even tell me you can talk to her. She can help you or get you connected to a woman who has this similar story or even we can help with counseling as well. But we would love to help start a process of helping you deal with this if this is your story as well. But healing begins with repentance. But let's please not be so ignorant as to assume that those are the only people who need to repent in this room. Because women don't get pregnant by themselves, do they? They do not. And there are men in this room who also need to repent. Repent because you might have been the one who suggested the abortion. Or you were the one who drove them to the clinic. Or you were the one who provided the funds. Or you were the one who heard the idea and decided not to say anything about it and just let things run their course. And although you say, Adam, I I did not have this happen. It wasn't my body. And yet we are still complicit in that act. And I wonder if some of us men need to repent and say that we did not do what we should have done. We did not protect the rights of the unborn and we need to repent. What would it look like to open those painful doors and to acknowledge it and let the light of Christ shine in to cleanse and heal through forgiveness and love and be able to set you free from that. But that starts with repentance. What about parents? It's sad to me that over the course of my ministry, I've watched people in multiple churches, people who were staunch advocates against abortion, um, who were fiery in their defense of the pro-life stance until it became their daughter. And all of a sudden things changed. And all of a sudden, opinions changed because now it hit home. And it might be that some parents in here need to repent of advice that we gave, of things that we encouraged or things that we did not discourage when this came home to us and we didn't want anybody to know what will people think, what would we do, and instead we chose what seemed to us an easier option Instead of protecting the life of the unborn. And perhaps repentance needs to come to us to say we are sorry. What about those who have advocated for abortion? There are many people who say, Adam, I've come to a place in my life where I said, man, I wouldn't do that, but man, I don't want to prevent other people from doing that. And so, man, they can just do whatever they want. We can do whatever political calculus we do in our brains to get us to that place, but I find it hard to square with the scriptures and what the Bible tells us or the clear history of the teaching of the church, the early apostles, if we have found ourselves in a place of saying, no, I, I, I'm willing to advocate for that, perhaps we also need to Repent. I need to go back and reevaluate why I think those things, why I believe what I believe. And am I really basing this on the word? Am I basing it on the love of our savior or on something else? Maybe a repentance for actually supporting this needs to be ours. Or maybe it's just for some of us, we've just been apathetic. We just don't care. We say, Adam, I care about other things. I care about other issues. And look, that's, you know, live and let live. So people can do whatever they want. It's America. And so you do your thing. But, but I, just, I just don't care. I don't care that over 600,000 unborn children died in 2018, which is last year I can find accurate numbers for. And about that many died the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that. Year before that we are quite literally looking at an American Holocaust. Quietly under the radar, and we don't care. And I wonder if it's time that we said, I-, I need to repent from my apathy about this and say instead, you care about every single human life. You gave your life for every single human life. Jesus, I must follow suit. And so we start with repentance, but there, is, there are things that we can do. We can respond. There are things that we don't simply need to repent in our own hearts. We can react, we can respond. There are ways that we can help in this fight. We have incredible organizations here in Birmingham, whether it be Save a Life, whether it be Lifeline. There are are ministries that seek to help unwed mothers, women in teen pregnancy situations, uh, people who want to help in the adoption process, people who help women in crisis, people who help children in crisis. We can choose to volunteer, we can choose to support, we can choose to help in in numerous ways those who are on the front lines of this fight. It's been awesome also to see just the rise of adoption in the Christian church. When I was born and growing up in the church, I just didn't see a lot of this and that has changed in 40 years. We have seen such a shift in attitude in the Christian church about adoption to say, listen, if we're going to champion life, we champion life at all stages for all peoples. And so, yes, I am willing to adopt. And if not adopt, maybe foster. And if you can't foster, say, I want to help those families who are fostering. There's so many different ways to help. We'll all do that in different ways. Case in point, in a month or so over at the Chelsea campus, there's going to be a new pilot program we're working on with Lifeline to help foster families. It's called Families Count. Where foster families are gonna be able to come and if they're dealing with having their children being taken away, they can come and they can have some training. They're gonna hear the gospel. But also, we we can partner with these families and mentor them and encourage them, help them however we can so that these children can be reunited with their birth parents. These are all, this is one of the many ways you and I can choose to get involved and say, I will not stand idly by in the middle of this. But then finally, and maybe most importantly, we can pray. And I hope you didn't hear that and went, well, gosh, that's just a trite way to end. Have we not learned the power of prayer? People who have been praying fervently for decades who might see the culmination of that here in the next year or two. Prayer works. What would happen if you and I began to pray? Pray not simply for the unborn, but for all of humanity, for all of our brothers and sisters, and ask the Lord to help us change from a culture that finds itself really okay with casting aside the unborn and instead to become a culture of life that seeks to honor and preserve life for all people at all stages, in all cultures, and all places, because we're all made in the image of God. What would that look like? And so do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're gonna spend some time in worship to do just that. And look, I know that this is a heavy topic. It's weighty and it should be. And it dredges up a lot of things for us. And I would never embarrass you Force you to share that in front of other people. But this is also an issue we can't just leave behind. We can't just let it lie. It's something that God has called us to to say, Will you love people like I love people? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? And if you will, then will you stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves? Will you stand up for children? who have not even been born yet and make a choice to say, I choose life. I choose to protect life. Young boys and girls who are made in the image of God. And when the Lord gives us opportunity to repent, let's take it. When he gives us opportunity to help, let's take it. When he gives us opportunity to heal, let's take it. But the Lord's changed cultures before. And he can change ours too. What would it look like for us to start that process today? So I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing together. I'll be here up at the front. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to. If you wanna pray at these altars, you can. But you can also pray at your seat. Let's respond to the Lord. Not just to that thing that's happening out there. Let's respond to the Lord. And see if he will not bring healing today. So Father, thank you. I thank you that that's your name. You're a father and you care for all your children, everyone made in your image. So Lord, would you put that same passion in us? That we wouldn't let our our selfishness or convenience or or the culture or, or peer pressure or whatever it might be, steer us away from your heart to love you and to love our neighbors like you do, like you love us. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray for sisters who who are still in the process of healing and those who need to start the process of healing. I pray for brothers who are maybe being reminded today of things we'd rather forget. I pray for parents who said we just didn't know what to do and maybe regret a choice that they made. Lord, I'm thankful that in this moment, no matter who we are or where we've come from or what we've dealt with, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is acceptance, there is healing, there is change in your son, Jesus Christ. And that for every single one of us, we can find healing and life in you. So bring it to all of us and change our culture as we live your life out in the world around us. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.